Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest this week is Eitan Bensusan, co-founder and CEO at North One. North One is a business banking platform made for America. Banking for builders is their credo, and it aligns almost perfectly with who Eitan is as a person. He's a consummate builder. We cover Eitan's background, how he got to this weird and wild world of fintech, and what the future holds for North One and business banking in general in the United States. This episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by Visum. Visum is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and the spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at v-sum.com. And with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with ATAN at North One. All right, ATAN, my friend, welcome to For Fintech's Sake, brother. How are you doing today? I am doing well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I'm sitting in Kansas City. You said you're sitting in Toronto, right? Yep. Awesome. And that's uh, that's kind of the the home, the home of the company, right? The home of North One is kind of up north, but you also have homes in uh, New York and San Francisco, right? But as we were it, discussing, it is, there's no cities. Yeah, it is one of the homes. I think you know we much much of what we do is based out of New York, but. Um, historically, there's always been a presence in in Toronto, um, New York, and San Francisco. But you know, today, it honestly, like we're so spread out. You know, people have already moved out of these kind of city clusters, and they're kind of going to wherever they want. So I'd say 20% of our customer of our company is working from like anywhere, um, which is great. I mean, it, it doesn't change anything for us. I love it, man. Well, yeah, as long as as long as everyone's working, and as long as we're doing what we need to do, like, what is a city anymore, anyways, right? So yep. let's go, let's go back to the early days, uh, not just early days of North one, but early days of your <laughs> life. Tell me about your, yeah. your upbringing. And I know you kind of grew up in a home surrounded by small business owners. And I think that kind of informs the rest of this conversation. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your, your history. Yeah. So, uh, look, I, I was very fortunate. I had a, a great childhood, um, and it was, you know, born into a family of, of small business owners. And it was small business that allowed me to have the childhood that I have, right? It was, uh, you know, folks coming to to America over the last 200 years or so and coming with like, you know, like something in their pocket that was maybe like a, a, almost nothing and turning it into a, a good life. Um, and, you know, the, the benefit of it is obvious, right? I, I got to have a great childhood. You know, we were, you know, never wanting in any me- meaningful way, which was wonderful. But uh, the opportunity cost of you know being in a small business family is that small the the metabolism of small business runs your life, mm. and so much of the rhythm of my family you know you often have months close you know payroll um, you know processing receipts you know back in that day you get like all these paper receipts from Mastercard or Visa and all of a sudden someone's there counting them all sending off you know the net the net pieces of it. Um, which was fine, but that actually was highly uh, correlated to stressful times in our family. You know, when months, when when it was time to close the books at the end of the month, um, that's when you, as a kid, like kind of just shy away a little because you know that like people are on edge, like if things don't match up, everybody gets really nervous. Um, same thing with you know payroll day, making sure it went out the door, etc. Which was fine, like you know, you're a kid, you're not really thinking that it is meaningful. But as you grow up, you start realizing like this is this is such a weird mismatch. You know, my grandfather is an electrician and, you know, he's really good at making sure the wiring in your home or the mall is safe, but yet his nights and weekends were pretty much filled with accounting, uh, financial management, banking, payroll, which is the, the thing he was never trained for yet. The thing that, you know, sucked most of his emotional energy. Um, and, and same thing across the family, people trained in something very technical or specific. And yet, the same problem was emerging amongst all of them that, you know, just the money, running the, the finances of the business was the job that, you know, you'd have to do after the shop closed or after you're off the work site. And, you know, I didn't do much about it then. Like I didn't really know the difference, but I just found that to be extremely odd. Um, 
And then later in life, I was, I was very fortunate. I worked uh, at McKinsey for about five and a half years and, you know, was just there at the right place and right time where it was about 2010. Um, fintech as a, like the way we think about it today was really emerging out of Europe um, in a meaningful way. And so, you know, I was kind of sent to, to really study what was happening there, what was going on in London, Berlin, Tel Aviv, Paris, even New York sometimes, because of the banks were hearing like, hey, something's happening in financial innovation, yet, but that's our turf. Like, why am I hearing mm-hmm. about this coming from outside of a, of a large bank? I mean, remember historically, banks would be like where the best, you know, software was built, where, you know, the most robust Fort Knox, great security had to be deployed. So you'd assume, you know, prior to the 2000s that like the banks were very, very um, tech savvy. And yet all of a sudden you had this other narrative emerging. And so part of what I was doing there was trying to figure out what is thematically going on in Europe and what is, what are the implications? Um, you know, the, the banks that we read this out to were like, okay, you know, interesting, so not really a lot of, you know, fire, pl- fire, you know, burning platform, you know, moments. They were just saying, okay, we'll see what happens. But being in the trenches with these early startups, um, some that are now unicorns and seeing them at the 30, 50 person level, um, you're just, I was just convinced. I said like, this, this is so where the future is going. This idea of open banking, API banking, um, you know, customer, customer centric design to financial services, you know, thinking of like, if, if somebody from Instagram walked into a bank and said, how could I redesign things? What would happen? Yeah. Um, and, and it was really the audacity with which people were attacking the way that financial services can be you know, manufactured, sold, experienced that really had me thinking often back to my childhood, um, thinking, you know, the biggest thing that my family was, was trying to conquer was just all of this transaction data that they get in their little bank book. Remember, it was like these old things used to stick in the machine and it would print out rows and rows. That's what they would get. And yeah. they'd spend much of their time trying to understand like what it all meant, let alone the fact that each transaction was garbled strings of numbers and, and letters. Um, they had to figure out, you know, for every transaction, was it legitimate? Is it too much, too little? When you kind of put them all together, what is the story of the business? Are, are we okay? Will we survive? Will we not? And I, I specifically saw generational wealth in our family evaporate when someone just got it wrong. They yeah. didn't realize that the same week that you had payroll going out the door was a tax week, uh, was a week where, you know, uh, rent was due and they had just made a major purchase, you know, a week and a half earlier. And all of a sudden you find yourself with like a day and a half before you realize like, I, I don't have money. Like I can't pay what I have to pay. Um, and, and so to me, the, the thing that kept on just obsessing me was this idea. There was nothing really novel in what had to happen. It's like mm-hmm. the same 10 reports that every business kind of around the world has to do, has to, has to complete um, on a biweekly or monthly basis. So why did, why did everything stop at the transaction level? Mm-hmm. And it was so, almost bleached of any context or meaning. Um, and so that's where this idea of, well, what if a bank was actually thinking about the end case for uh, the end use case for all the, this data? What if they appreciated what had to be done to it and helped you get 80% of the way there, away of the way there, let's say. That's really where this kernel of North One started forming, saying like, someone's got to do this. Like, why is this not being done? And I, to be honest, like, I became so obsessed with this notion. I couldn't really think of much else and ended up quitting McKinsey to go start North One. Oh, that's where, that's where all of the best businesses start is a, a sense of obsession and uh, often while working at McKinsey or BCG or wherever, right? It's, it's a, yeah. there's a seed of that. And also it's, it, you know, your childhood story, I associate with it a lot because my mom has been a sole proprietor owner of a yoga studio for now, like, I guess it's coming up on 40 years and thinking back on my childhood, like some of the most stressful times or the times when I was most incentivized to go play outside or, you know, phrase it however you want was like tax season, right? Like it's like the shit was just hitting the fan. We had a a entire house somehow full of documents that had to be organized and sent to the IRS. And also it blew my mind that she never, like I I would ask my mom back in the day, like how much did you make last year? Just out of sheer curiosity. And she could almost never tell me like, you know, post-tax or whatever. Like she was like, well, I mean, do you want to know about my expense? Like there's 18 questions that go after that. And I was just like, how is this, how is this a thing? So I I love the small business focus and we'll come back to North One in a second. Mm -hmm. 
Before we get there though, before you got to McKinsey, I was creeping as I was doing some research. And one of the things that like early on in your career that I have to ask a question about was being a research intern at Charlie Rose. Do you have any good <laughs> stories from that? Like how, how did you end up there? What, what was that like? Cause that just sounds like a wild yeah. internship. I love that you asked about that. So um, that was um, an internship that I applied for, I think three or four times. Wow. So I, yeah, I, I grew up watching Charlie Rose with my dad. I mean, it right. was like the most fun thing to, to just be able to stay a little up, up a little later and just be exposed to just people you never heard of. And then all of a sudden read up about them, et cetera. Um, and, and so, you know, as I was going to university, I just became just, I loved everything about that. And so I applied <laughs> and, you know, I got rejected. So I called them up and I said, you know, Hey, how can I, how can I get in next time? Like, what don't I have? And like, well, you know, you're a science student, you're studying you know, <laughs> math and biochemistry. So it doesn't really make a ton of sense for you to come into, you know, TV and, and showbiz. So I said, okay, well, what are the things that would then, you know, mitigate that? And they're like, well, get involved in like local publications, newspaper, TV, anything you can to show us. So I said, okay. So then by the end of the next year, uh, I started writing for one of the the school newspapers. Um, I got involved in the TV, kind of the student TV association of, wow. of the university to say like, okay, you know, Hey, I, and again, I applied and got rejected and asked them for feedback one more time. And they were very, I mean, thankful I got feedback. Right. Yeah. Um, and they said, look, I mean, your coursework really doesn't match what, you know, like <laughs> what you know about. So I, I said, okay, I'll minor in poli sci. And I got myself a minor, got some, you know, poli sci courses under my belt. And then I think it was a third of the fourth year I applied again. And they said, you know what, like, if you show up tomorrow for an interview, like we'll, we'll interview. So I got on an overnight bus to New York, got out of there at like seven 30 in the morning, like literally in a, I think I went to a stall, put on a suit wow, and walked into the thing. And then I think later that day they called me and said like, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take you. And so, you know, that summer and, and for many, I mean, a few more months than just the summer, but I, I spent my time, um, at the show in New York and it was transformative to be honest. I bet. I mean, it sounds like also like being an intern in New York on the Charlie Rose show, I imagine you were making like $6 an hour and living in someone's closet and like, just like make, making it through. I'm sure you learned, uh, learned a lot about, about grit and a lot about, uh, the amount of work that goes into a lot of things that maybe we like take for granted as, you know, watchers kind of thing. You know, it's funny. Um, this is something I've actually never even shared before, but Oh, I, I was it. living in two because it was so unaffordable for me. Yeah, I'm um, sure that no, who I, can, no one can afford to live in New York. Like the CEO no. of Goldman can't afford to live in New York. They just do. <laughs> so they, I had, we were six guys in an apartment on bunk beds. Oh. It's like <laughs> literally that. And it was a small apartment, right? There were four rooms. One of them was like a kitchen and every other room was like a bunk bed with two like grown men who were doing something in New York. And I would work jobs at night and on the weekends to help pay for the rent. I mean, the, you know, at that point, the internship wasn't a paid internship. I was doing it, you know, just to get the experience. Wait, 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 wait. It wasn't paid at all. No, but that was, I mean, that was the standard at that point. Then eventually yeah. they started paying. That's um, wild. But you know, for, in my view, like I, I was able to squeak by and I was forever grateful. I mean, like just, just the opportunity to do what I did. Um, was awesome. And, you know, I tutored at nights. I worked as a busboy catering events, like literally anything I could just do that would, and my parents helped me out, of course. I mean, anything I could do to just make it work. And it did. Um, and, and it was just incredible. I love it, man. The, the like starving artist in LA, but like <laughs> Charlie Rose worker in New York, it's just like an interesting, yeah. It takes a lot but, of a uh, lot of grit to get through something like that. I'm sure there's uh, some overlap in what you've had to go through raising it, and everything else. It's definitely a theme. I mean, look, you know, the other part of it is that I was, you know, I was, I was a man on the show, right? I didn't see, I didn't know, but all the other, I was like a young, you know, college student. And apparently like years later, you find out all these things that happened. It was, that was actually, you know, devastating. Um, but you don't, you I wasn't even exposed to that. Right. So I came out of there thinking like win of a lifetime. Um, and, and I really, I mean, from, from my own career trajectory, seeing, I mean, meeting the people I got to meet there, you know, you'd see Condoleezza Rice walk through the office, Will Ferrell, oh, man. Yeah. Um, you know, 
just just every name I could imagine. I'm like, I can't believe that these people are within like touching distance of me, right? Like you could literally almost shake their hand. I mean, you shake their hand sometimes. Um, and it humanized so many of these people that were larger than life. Yeah. And getting out of that like starstruckness um, of like some of your favorite, you know, stars or, or politicians or, or business leaders um, made you realize like this is this is within reach. Like this is accessible. You could do this. You got to be lucky. You got to work hard. But there's nothing. You know, we, we're all we're all able to get there somehow if we're lucky and we have a little bit of you know um, a good starting point. Um, so that was that was really helpful for me. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had had and have the hustle and grit that you could have could have kept going in the media direction. And I mean, it looks like you you did something called talk, talking business after that. So I mean, it sounds like you almost ended up going that direction. Like what what kind of took you from that more media oriented direction into McKinsey? I imagine, I mean, <laughs> the salary in and of itself seems like a better decision, but what, what else kind of drove you that direction? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I just always tried to follow the love, right. Mm. You know, I, I had something that was really, really um, intangible about working, you know, at that show. And then the, you know, I was able to leverage that into something recurring with the talking business piece, you know, interviewing other business leaders, um, you know, for another publication. I just said, look, I, I love it. I don't know where it's going to lead me per se, but as long as the love is there, like I will continue this. And I mean, what it, what it ended up helping me realize is, especially as we were entering more and more business leaders is that that is a world where like, I get the logic. I want to like jump in there mm. and help me, you know, just almost pressure test ideas across dozens of business leaders. You know, I, the, the interviewer for that show, we, we think of ideas together. And so I was, here I was hypothesis testing, like how's this person answer and different answers. The very questions I was wondering about, it almost gave me like a free textbook on how to business. And um, eventually that, that allowed me to really have a, a nice moment of self-awareness where I said, you know, what is a, what is an opportunity to rapid fire like myself through many different industries, learn the things, um, just figure out my way in life. And McKinsey was such an incredible opportunity for that. It allowed me to have like a, I think I went through 23 industries over my time there, wow. something, you know, in that number, um, really, you know, rapid iteration on my leadership skills. You know, you have a new project every few months, new team, you know, you're constantly in a upward trajectory. So you're always, you know, getting, you can manage your, your own work stream, manage a person, you can manage a person, manage two, manage two, you can manage, you know, et cetera. And, um, you know, you fail a ton, but you also get better. And I think it would have taken me maybe five, 10 years to do, to kind of figure out who I was um, as, as a leader and as just, you know, a professional. But I got to do it in you know, in a much shorter time span um, in that experience. Yeah, you. Uh, I'm, I'm sensing a trend of you enjoying putting yourself in a pressure cooker. Like for, yeah. for somebody that grew up, not necessarily. I mean, like you said, right? It was a good childhood, like not horrible, whatever. Like you could have probably just gone and done a thing for however many years and retired and been fine with it. But it seems like you really like putting yourself through some shit, like in a small amount yeah. of time. And <laughs> you kind of kind of almost masochistic with some of it. Um, what? So one of the questions I really have about McKinsey before we get into North One I've had a few mentors in my life that have said, you know, kid, you should go work at BCG or McKinsey or, you know, go work at one of the big kind of consulting firms so that you can actually kind of like you just said, like learn this business stuff right across many different industries and kind of learn the classical way of thinking about business, right? Understand the spreadsheets, all that kind of stuff. And I candidly just say fuck too much. And that's just, I don't think I ever was going to work too well in some of those uh, cultures. So I've never done it. But what, what did you learn coming out of that? Like mental models in that experience, just ways of thinking about the world. I, I love what you said about meeting, meeting your heroes kind of and realizing that they're just yeah. humans. I'm sure that's a piece of it. But what else did you learn coming out of McKinsey? Yeah, I think three big things I took with me that, that really served me in, in North at, you know, at my, all the time at North one. And the first was just a comfort with ambiguity. Mm. Um, you're often thrown into data poor environments with very unclear high level abstract questions that are being asked of you to solve. And you have to be comfortable enough with that, that dance to then turn it into something tactical, concrete, break this amorphous problem into very you know, 
specific work streams that you can then recreate hypotheses, find data for test and kind of come turn into something real. Cause often you're, you're brought into situations where like, something is happening, but nobody can figure out what it is. There's a yeah. fire. How do we put it out? What it, where is the fire coming from? Um, that was a, you know, a, an incredible piece because in, in the North one experience, I mean, you're only data poor, right? You're starting with nothing. You have just yeah. ideas <laughs> and you have to find a way to be comfortable with that for years and years. I mean, I'd probably forever, but, but be able to turn that into something structured. Um, mm. You know, the, the second piece was just rigor. You know, my, your expectation for the bar of quality of, of your own output and that around yourself. And that informs a lot of how we hire at North One, what my expectations are, the base level of what output would be. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to be perfect. It's an 80-20, you know, approach to things, but it just means that whatever that thing that you've put out, um, it has all the right levels of quality that is expected and anything less is just intolerated. And I think the last one is just the role of, of people in everything, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just a spreadsheet thing. It's not just a number. People drive all of the engines of every company possible. Um, they design the big machines, they run the big machines, you know, they, they repair the big machines and then they price them and sell them, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so I just realized how important it was to have to, and, and how hard it was to take many people, sometimes dozens, if not thousands of people, get them pointed in the same direction, excited, motivated, despite their different backgrounds and, and you know, interest in life and actually do something that that changes the world. And to me that, you know, I, I kept on just distilling that to, you just have to have an incredible people operation for a company to operate, but think about one to break into the world. And, and that really, I mean, it, those come to me all the time um, in our day to day. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're not obsessed about people, you're probably a really shitty founder. Just a honest sentence. (laughs) It's sad, sad, but it's true. Um, So data poor environment. Yes. That is literally every startup and like rigor and people almost like go together. Like you just have to be obsessed about these things. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. And it is a wonderful transition into North one. And some of the rigor that you put into the business before you founded it, I think is one of the most fascinating things to me, right? Like it's almost like you were doing customer discovery when you came out of the womb, but it seems like you kept doing it through life. So tell me about like the amount of work that you did pre-launch, right? Cause I think you guys like got together and kind of the idea was like what, 2015, 2016, but then you launched in mm-hmm. 2019. So I know yep. you did a lot of work talking to customers. Talk, talk me through that kind of expand on the order of operations and why you started with that. Yeah. I mean, the first thing was that there was just two things I knew I was solving for. One was whatever this thing of fintech that this fintech thing was right this wave of change that i would have maybe a decade of exposure to before you know the the things crystallize back in place again yeah the the warp the wormhole opens up and it closes um so i knew that there had to be something there and then it was going to somehow hit this very root problem that i saw as a kid um and then i didn't know what business the business model was like I, i really it was all up in the air and to be honest completely frank with you, I, the, the idea of starting a challenger bank was maybe the last item on the list of what I would hope that it would turn out into. Like it just, wow. it felt the least realistic. I was thinking, you know, maybe it's an app, a tool, it's a data science play. Maybe right. it's, you know, an SMB friendly version of Tableau for finance. Like I was trying to get anywhere that felt within reach. Um, but after we, I probably had interviewed a hundred small business owners across North America, across industries, geographies, ethnicities, stage. And the, whenever there was, you know, I'd ask them, what was the first, what are the big three biggest things that keep you up at night when it comes to your business? And if they didn't answer money, right. If they didn't say something related to money, I'd say, you know, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's probably just not the right time, um, for us to talk, but those who did, you kind of ask why and why and tell me more and bring it to life. How many, no matter people, what, how many people yeah. didn't say money? Sorry to interrupt, but like what small business owner did not have a top three that was like somehow monetarily related, like payroll accounts receivable. It seems like, I mean, who, who doesn't have that as a top three problem? You know, I think it just depends on, on um, the crisis of the moment, right? For some mm. people it was hiring other people, then it was selling. And then for others, it was, you know, like, new things to like new product it eventually gets connected back to money, but right. they were really thinking about um, parts of their business that weren't connected to the financial part. And 
often it's because they had a level of stability in yeah. the business that would allow those new things. It's like the privilege of having better problems. Right. 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 Makes um, sense. But, but the, what surprised me was just how large some businesses could get where that was the number one problem. You know, I, I, I'll never forget the, um, owner of a law firm that had at least like a dozen lawyers, um, all well-educated, you know, very smart people. And she broke down in tears when I asked her about what it feels like to close the books. Tell me like, where's the pain? And she just said like, I am just absolutely terrified that I'm going to make a mistake. I went into law because I don't like numbers. And yet here I am mired in numbers. And if I do the wrong thing, I'll get, you know, fined by the tax authorities. I might, you know, mismanaged payroll like it was and you're just you you're sitting through this and the same story is happening again and again when i to be really honest with myself i said if i if i really want to do this in a way that that resonates and connects the dots between what i experience what these folks are clearly telling me about it's that you actually need a better um it's that they at the root of it all was that there was this enormous amount of data that was being given to them by their bank and the act of taking that data and making sense of it and then helping that inform spending decisions, hiring decisions, et cetera, was so fraught with risk and with error that um, you had to actually hit it at the source. You couldn't actually put more layers of tools around it. Like you, you, you know, you can't polish it into like something nice. You really had to change the very essence of what was being you know, given to them. And so that's where it just ended up saying, okay, you know, we need a bank that is obsessed with small business. You know, in many banks, small business is like the sick child, unfortunately, right? It's it's not the most profitable business line for them. Um, it's one where many of the folks working in the bank can't relate to. You know, you, you unless you have lived in the small business world, it is very difficult to truly understand the nature of their problems, um, what, you know, what a good solution looks like. And so in our case, we said, well, what if someone just focused on them and we reverse engineer a model where it is profitable to serve every small business in America. But more importantly, you know, with that very DNA of, I call it like just humility. Like I, I, I don't want to assert a problem and a solution on someone's behalf. To me, that that is the dangerous place. Yeah. Um, you know, we invest heavily in, in keeping in touch and keeping a lifeline between us and our customers. We have what we call a voice of customer team where um, we have like a professional you know, UX researcher and customer discovery uh, professional who talk to one customer and non-customer almost every day of the week. And we're testing out hypotheses, we're rediscovering our customers or people who could be our customers. And what is, how, what's the delta between who we have today and who they are? Um, and that is why it has always become an instinct across our company. Fortunately, that when we make decisions on the product roadmap on, you know, uh, branding things. We say, but, but think about our customers, you know, think about how they would, would experience this. Do they want this. Do they value it? it we we certainly make plenty of mistakes like every other startup does, but I think we, it helps us make better iterations to something that they'll love. Yeah. I mean, making mistakes with the love in the right place, right? Like, I mean, you kind of to your earlier point of like just following the love through your whole career, like, it sounds like you have a love affair with small business in North America. And how do you not do everything you can to like stay in touch with them, understand them and provide them with what they need. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So I think that the customer voice thing is really interesting. At what point did you decide to implement that? How much do you get involved in that as, as the CEO, how much does the rest of the executive team, like how, because I, you know, I've, I've spent enough time in startups. The reason I asked the question is because in my classical experience, there is customer discovery and then we build a product and then we just sell, 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 sell. We don't ask questions. We don't go back to people that can't hand us any money. We just sell. We just forget that we ever gave a shit about this human. We just sell. So I love that that's part of the DNA and something you guys keep coming back to, but it doesn't sound like a light lift and having one person do it is great, but how do they... How do they get that information to you? How do you experience yeah. that in an empathetic manner? Like, how do you culturally disperse that? Well, you know, in early days, which is still kind of recent, um, yeah. <laughs> anyone who was hired, their first, like the, the last part of their onboarding experience was they had to interview a small business and they had to present those findings to a group of three or four people at the company. 
it was almost like that had to be your your stripe like that you earn i love it uh, yeah. to get through it eventually that became just unsustainable um for other reasons but people now uh sit in on customer support calls um people you know we have other ways of expressing that but to be clear i i want to lead an example on this i sign up for at least two calls a week mm. where i will be the note taker on the call i'd rather have you know one of our professionals ask the question um but i will actually take the notes um and then we we have a bit of a 15 20 minute brainstorming after the call what did we learn and then we publish those findings like a synthesis of them internally in our user research channel and then when we come to you know our product roadmap sessions we bring the people from the team we send all the research notes in advance so that we are informed by this and this is you know this is one part of it the other part of customer research um is the data part um mm -hmm. you know early days we could only do interviews but over time we started being able to generate lots of data on behavior um and and how that how people interacted with the product so that's the other complementary side of the voice of customer team it's just the data of customer and when you have those two together you're able to connect the qualitative insights to some real um real quantitative facts on the ground and so that that helps us think about our customers and i think in a really special way at least for them and our customers love it our customers are just you know floored sometimes to find out that we we want to know from them what would they love what do they hate about what they're experiencing um because i don't think a lot of people reach out to small businesses for that kind of uh, feedback and you know it is our it is literally our oxygen i mean without that we're really flying blind it's a rare, it's a rare trait to find culturally that that's so top of mind. And I think that there's something, something in there in that description that every listener, be they a CEO, you know, a, a worker, be a regulator, whoever it is, I think there's a, a thread in there for everybody to pull on. But honestly, the piece of that that was the most interesting to me, you kind of just glazed over it, was the fact that you take the fucking notes. Like the, I've not met a ton of CEOs in my life or ever even worked with one. And if any of my past or current CEOs that I work with are listening, I am talking about you. None of them have the humility to just take the notes. Like I, I that's such a rare, that's such a rare thing. And it seems small, but if I was sitting in a meeting and my CEO was the one taking the notes, like that would resonate in such a, like servant leadership oriented way for me that I'm like, Oh, he's like, he's not, he's not too cool to, it's almost like the zoom version yeah. of taking out the trash or something, right? Like you can't, you can't do all that shit anymore now that we don't sit in the office. So it's like little things like that. I imagine make a big difference. Was that like a con conscious thing that you decided to do to be the note taker? Like you could just sit there, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, we do have observers, right? There's every time there's an interview, there's, you know, the person asking the questions and typically that's one of the, the actual, like truly well-trained professionals in that. Um, then there's a note taker and the observers. And um, I like taking the notes. I mean, I find that, I mean, just it's, it was a personal thing, right? I want to support our researchers. They are so, so better trained than I am. We hired them for that very reason. Like my, my greatest victory is when I can replace part of my job with someone who's a 10 times better than me at it. Um, and so I want to support them and I like taking the notes Apart from the fact, what really drives it is that it, it is my best way to truly understand what the customer is saying. If I'm writing it down, I'm actually deeply, deeply thinking about it. Um, if I observe, I have the chance that I get distracted with something, yeah. et cetera. And I, I really do take the time that a customer gives us um, as a privilege. And so if I'm there, ideally, I want to be as engaged as possible. And I know that it does have like a great signaling effect, but frankly, that was like, oh, I didn't realize that that was the signaling that was happening. Like I just, I just really wanted to be the one ingesting the information um, so that I can connect the dots myself. I mean, that's an even better answer. Like if you had thought through the signaling, then you would, you know, it's almost a little house of cardsy of like, <laughs> well, I'm going to come across this way so that they think I'm human, like, so they think I'm humble, but actually well, I'm not. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I love, I love it, man. It's, it really, it really is unique. So it like this thread of this thread of customer centricity and your obsession in the small business has definitely like pulled through, through this whole life of the business. But as you were talking to customers, you were also pitching investors on a yeah. early stage fintech, small business, neobank thing in what, 2016, like Chime was kind of successful at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the consumer neobanks were like starting to be a thing. 
did you get laughed out of rooms? Were they like, oh, interesting? Like, what was the what was the painful affair of raising that first round? You know, it, timing is everything. Yeah. Um, you know, an incredible idea in the wrong year can be disastrous. And I learned that. I mean, we we were so fortunate. We we started this, and I started this um, based on kind of just a glimpse of the future, really in Europe. And there wasn't just a lot of news making it across the Atlantic to say, hey, there's like a million people that have signed up for this like challenger bank in Germany called N26. Everybody pay attention. Um, Some people were, but like it wasn't like the the general investor population, let alone like the general population wasn't, it just wasn't where everybody's attention was at. Yeah, they're in friggin' Germany. Like nobody's paying attention to German technology until it makes its way to the US and we buy a Mercedes, right? I mean, that's kind of (laughs) it. And look, and historically, you didn't really look to Germany for the new things, right? I mean, it wasn't, and this is what's so fascinating to me about like the rise of FinTech in Europe. Like if you think of like 1995, would you have thought London is the hotbed of innovation? Like maybe not, but it really has created just such a hub of innovation and financial services. Like, you know, cheers to them. They really took it, ran with it and did something incredible. And same thing with Berlin, um, you know, increasingly Paris and and Tel Aviv. Like those are the places which just got there early, um, really as a function of how those countries reacted to the financial crisis and, you know, the the long-term effects of that. But, you know, back in North America, you know, I think fintech, you, you even see the real consumer-based fintech that I think a lot of us think of today is like kind of like PayPal in the 90s, right? That was like the first flag, at least in my lifetime, that I yeah. really felt like, wow, that is net new different. You had the emergence of lenders in the 2000s. But what really pops is what, you know, what happens post-financial crisis in like the early 2010s with the, the, the sprinklings of something like that. But it only gained steam much later. And so I came in with this idea, like this is so obviously the future, like I can see it, I can feel it, I have seen it. Yet everyone uh, that I was talking to in the investor community was, you know, curious by it. We got a lot of it, you got a lot of excitement because you're saying bold things, you're, you're, you're changing the way people think about, you know, banks. Most often you would sell to banks rather than compete with them. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think knowing who the investors you should be speaking to are is something I learned over time. Um, you know, speaking to generalists when this is not a mainstream vertical to invest in is probably not the best use of your time. I didn't know that, you know, I was just thinking an incredible business idea will resonate, uh, but I wasn't making the case. Like I take that upon myself. Like I spoke to 150 investors in our seed round. Um, I got rejected by them. I got, you know, a yes from another dozen or so, which made all the difference, but that was 150 iterations on a pitch on self-awareness of how I come across as a founder, how what our team is doing. And we made it by, by like, just by a hair. I mean, we had, you know, a few thousand dollars left in the bank. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I was already, I had not taken salary for a year, um, was paying most things off of my credit card by that point and, and had, you know, a personal panic attack when I you know couldn't make rent, had a daughter on the way. Things were just oh, like man. extremely uh, stressful, but that that is where you know the theme you tapped into before. Like I, I just want to bulldoze my way through hard things. Like it yeah. just my I am wired to do that, and it it is both you know a threat because over time, like I'm sure there are times when I should not be doing that, but in those cases, I just wouldn't. I refuse to give up, and out of stubbornness, naivete, I don't know what it is. Um, but that allowed me to get to like that 151st investor who said yes. And then all of a sudden you're able to start putting together, um, you know, a, a, a sufficient number of investors that put, you know, two and a half million dollars together and, and got us out the door. But um, that's because they actually believe a lot more on person, team, and, you know, a little bit in fintech rather than they're like, I am on in the market for investing in a challenger bank and I, I know the business case and I'm looking for the right one. Um, so you have to have those early believers. And I think as a result of why they invested, which a lot was their their faith in, in me and the team, those are actually personal friends now. Like I have mm. some of those investors who purely were investors at the time. And it was such an intimate moment in my life, given the pressure and you know the nature of what they were investing in that I actually have a handful and I speak to like once a month on a friendly basis, not even on like a, here's how we're doing basis. 
and and I think that was very unique for me. It was actually, it actually informed how I, how I think about many of our later stage investors. Um, you know, of course, you know, we, we have a, an important relationship to make sure that we are explaining how the business is working and thinking about that together. But I really do value the opportunities I have to get to know them as people and to go behind the, the investor title and understand, you know, the, the person there. And, and that's actually made a difference for me, at least. It just makes it so much more enjoyable and um, de-risks not knowing the person sitting across the table. And, and it's a great story for founders to hear for a number of reasons from my perspective. One is talking to 150 investors is when you get to start complaining from my point of view. That's when you get to start saying like, okay, I've talked to a number of investors now. It drives me nuts, especially in my previous life when I was investing in early stage startups, when they would say, oh, I've talked to 20 investors and just nobody will say yes. I'm like, that's because you've talked to like two invest. 20 is not a large number of investors. Go back to work, you lazy ass. So that I think is a, a very good thing for founders to hear. But also the relationship building aspect of it. If you could go back and do it again, would you have started kind of building relationships with VCs earlier or what, what would have been maybe some of the things, and I guess you kind of hinted at it with like how you've thought about later stage investors, but what are some of the things you would have done differently to make that process suck less? I, I don't know how much a seed round can suck less. They're just hard as hell, but anything? Um, well, I mean, I had to learn the lessons of the seed round Yeah. in some way, whether I could have learned them before, that would have been really nice. It would have saved me a lot of pain. Sure. But the lessons were, were, were really important. And what really, what it helped us do is make me, helped us and the team, myself and the team understand that targeting the right people to hear what you have to say is, is the binary outcome. Um, you only have so many cycles before you lose, you have no more oxygen left and you've got to just, you know, you literally have to give, you throw in the hat. Yeah. So making sure that they are the highest probability of the right people hearing your message and then discounting the fact that most of them will say no, but some of them will say yes, was a really important lesson. But, you know, I, I actually, the reason that I think a lot of this work is because we had done so much pre-work into that pitch. So I didn't spend my time getting to know them personally before then. I spent time making the strongest possible business case so that I could get their eyes to pop when we met. And then I got to know them personally through the courtship and then later, right? And it's unfortunate because in theory, you want to get to know these people earlier, but the real reason why you might bring people together in an investor founder relationship is because you have something really interesting to offer that makes, that creates the platform upon which a friendship can be built. And the thing that I have learned is in a very compressed race cycle, you know, some of our rounds have been completed in like three weeks. Wow. Uh, you have to try to validate the same level of, um, counterpart, you know, are they human? How do they react under pressure? Uh, what happens when they hear bad news, all these things. So that's where you have other tools talking to their, you know, I, I would go to, um, those investors and say, give me founders in your portfolio. And then I'd go and look through press releases and talk and look for founders aid back that are no longer listed. Uh, you know, like every investor will put in yeah. the Twitter, you know, investor at, and then like five of the best yeah. companies. Uber, what Stripe. The, yeah. They don't yeah. put web van on there, do they? Exactly. So you want to yeah. go find the web vans of the world. You want to go find the ones that got delisted for whatever reason. And then ask those founders, how was this person? How did they deal with that part of the journey? And it is a, it is a 24 hour job when you're in that particular raise mode. Cause you're not only just thinking about the deal and the investment and the terms and all that, but you're actually trying to make sure that you are um, essentially marrying the right kind of person. And so my, the lessons I've taken is being really prepared for that level of intensity. So even when I do the prospecting of who will be the right person for this round, I start researching them as they get on my list. Mm. I start putting feelers out to former founders try to find you know, connections on LinkedIn just to talk about how they act. And then when I get to the raise, it's typically a little easier. Um, and then the other thing that I can count on now, which I couldn't before, is I have a number of investors that I truly trust and believe in who can help me get a litmus test for the people I'm talking to. Yeah. And that's another source of insight that at those early stages, I really wouldn't have had. So speaking of that kind of like, I don't know, matchmaking kind of a thing almost. How did you fall upon or fall upon? How did you discover the 
the customer that is the North One customer today? And like, what does that person or business look like? Uh, I imagine it's more than a sole prop, right? They're doing payroll. They're doing yeah. a number of other things. How did you find that person? And how did you talk them into buying the thing that you wanted to sell them? Right. Um, well, the fortunate thing is that there's a lot of them, right? Yeah. There's, it's not that you have 300 customers in the world that you could sell to. Right. Um, the, so I think by design, we, we were, we wanted to be serving businesses on main street. These are, um, we all sometimes call them digital last where they're not, their huh. goal, their, their, their world is not, you know, development, et cetera. And this is fine. We have a lot of great developers who are our customers, but the thing that attracts them is not the technology. The thing that attracts them is the, the job that the product will do for them or the, the pain or the time that we remove. And, and you can be literally anybody and if you, we are able to solve that pain for you, then we'll be relevant. Now, the, 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 what ends up happening is that the, the large majority of folks who do have that pain are actually businesses that are not steeped into the tech ecosystem. In fact, if you look at our website, we don't even put the word fintech there. I mean, yeah. it's like our customers shouldn't have to care what our category is called. And Why would they? Yeah. yeah. My mom still has no fucking clue what I do. And she would definitely care about North One. But it confuses the hell out of me when like, yeah, when neo banks of any, if you're consumer or business facing and you're not selling to fintech, like why would your customer care about the word fintech? Shut up. I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and to me, that, that's a real thing. I mean, our social channels never really talk about news and fintech because yeah. I'm not, those channels are not for investors or, you know, other founders. They're for customers to get a sense that these people are talking about things that are relevant to my world. And, um, that, that really informed our approach. I mean, we, we do have startups that bank with us and we have freelancers that bank with us and that's sure. wonderful. And, but, but when we think about who is that person we're designing for, it is a, a classically, uh, a classic business, you know, things from construction company truckers, like long haul truckers, mm -hmm. um, folks who, who typically had a shop now has probably moved online. And in many cases, we are the first big tool that they have used to digitize their business. And, and that's, what's fascinating. We'll ask them to send us like pictures of their home screen. Be like, what, what are the main apps that you're using? And you find that like, there's maybe seven or eight apps on their phone altogether. It's wow. really, you know, like, cause, and that's fine. Like I have hundreds of apps on my phone cause I love exploring and kind of learning what's going on. But from their point of view, it's like, listen, I am my, what drives me in life is building my business, spending time with my family, helping my community why would I spend my time in an app that is not going to drive my personal goals? That's, I think what's so fascinating. And then to, to then think about where they're thinking, where their head is at in life and then say, how do we now convince you, right. Or um, persuade you that this is actually a move to make within the cohort of main street businesses. There are some of them who are just in shopping mode for a bank account. And, yeah. and that's actually the, the critical piece. If you are, if we don't see data trails somewhere on the internet that you are in that buying process, even the early stages of it, we're not spending our time pushing our name in front of you. I think that's a big differentiator. A lot of banks have awareness marketing, name the stadium, right? Sponsor the tennis championship. And the more that your color and the name shows, you're hoping that when that buying decision comes, you're going to go to that, that name. Um, in our case, we don't have the means to do that. So we're very surgical in finding people who are showing some sign of, of wanting something better in one part of our many value propositions. And we bring them into our funnel that way. And the, the, the hook for them is that it should not, it should be as easy as like setting up an Instagram account. Hmm. It takes, you know, as little as three minutes to go from installing the app to having an FDIC insured bank account. And, and then you're done. It, it's actually uneducating like, or, or undoing the education and our customers where they believe that a new bank account requires a branch visit and yeah. documents that have to be brought somewhere and phone calls. Some of them are actually in disbelief. They go through the process and they're wondering when the phone call is supposed to happen. They're like they send our support team a message saying like, so what do I, where's the faxes? Like, what am I supposed to do? And that's, I think for us, the beauty of it, that it's gotta be so seamless because it's, it's a commodity, right? A bank account is like a critical commodity for your business. So, we want to make sure that it is so easy for them to sign up and we can deliver on the very promise that they, they went through that funnel with that I think is, is what helps us 
capture their imagination just enough for them to give us a try. And then we have to earn the rest of the relationship. Yeah. It's, you almost have to like de-traumatize them from all their previous life experience with banks. I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense and it clicks with the kind of, it seems like you have a very like give to get to give to get. It's just a, a circle that kind of goes over and over again. I mean, like just looking at your website, you have the, um, the financial health checklist, you have the free invoice maker. And I imagine those are, I mean, they're free for all intents and purposes, but I imagine those would lead to one or two customers occasionally by providing some, some free value. And then the flywheel begins kind of a thing. Well, it's funny. Those, there was a philosophy that we, I mean, we, we still use it. We, we have been using it forever, but it was this idea of give, 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 get like just give so much. And then eventually ask for something once you have demonstrated value. And so, you know, invoice maker is an app that we built and it was actually built pre-launch. And we, wow. you know, we're talking to a number of businesses and we'd ask them about tools they use, tools they hate using. And so many of them would tell us about, you know, the, the moment they really felt they were a business was when they wrote their first invoice and they've bumbled through many invoicing tools, never really super happy about them in some way or another. So we said, you know, what's a really great way to give value to businesses, like almost blindly without ever asking anything in return just yet. Let's make a beautiful free invoicing tool. They can pick it up and just get started. What a great way to kind of give to this community that one day, you know, one day when we launch, we're gonna ask for something in advance. And actually is one of the top three most downloaded invoicing apps in North America. Wow, Um, that's cool. It just has, it has gone, you know, it's had its own success in its own right. And it continues to be free. It's not, a the the goal there, yes, it, it now it helps us socialize our name and talk about our mission. And you'll definitely hear about why we built this app if you're using it. Yeah, but it is one of I'd say a dozen tech, what I call like a technical marketing experiment we've run. That one was the biggest success. But at one point, we were incorporating companies for free. We thought, hey, here's a great way to kind of build, you know, social capital with these folks. We we ended up stopping to do it because it was just the time it took, the complexity versus the the reward was very difficult for us to justify. But that's fine. We're so happy that we had eight failed experiments, you know, three okay ones and one really good one. Um, and, and all under the guise of if you can provide enough value in advance, when you do ask them that day saying, hey, we'd love for you to consider a Northland bank account. I mean, we've had customers tell us if it will be as easy to use as like invoice maker, then like, yeah, I'll definitely try you. So that that kind of came, um, the hypothesis did did pan out in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot like building a human relationship. If you walk into the room and first time meeting someone and say, Hey, give me a thing. It's generally not going to go over great. Right. Like this is kind of (laughs) approach it as one would approach kind of any conversation. Um, I know we're kind of coming up on time, but I'm super curious about the process of actually standing up that commodity that you were talking about, right? The, (laughs) the layer on top of that commodity is definitely where you guys spend most of your time, but we all in this uh, B2B or B2C fintech world have to go through the pain that is finding a bank partner, creating the FDIC insurance, figuring out the process or all that stuff. So what, what was that process like uh, in the, in the years of, you know, 16, 17, 18? Yeah. Well, I mean, this was where, I mean, remember today we see so many folks that are helping build fintech infrastructure, Yep. right? Like, layers that could go between these kind of classic banks and the fintech business to power it all. And that's great, but that did not really exist when we started. So we actually, you know, I I created a list of 90 banks um, and I was just listening to earning calls to hear someone say the word fintech partnerships, API. If you'd say something like that, you're on my radar. And I went to websites, press releases, just mind everything. And we, the goal there was to get to know quickly. How do we eliminate people from 90, you know, 90 institutions? We got down to like our final 15. And then we evaluated each one based on four dimensions, which was time to market, economics, technology, and like culture of your counterparts. Yeah. And it took a long time. But then when we got to the last five or four, we had a really strong sense of confidence that we could do the thing we wanted to do with them. And that took just lots of, you know, their, their cycle times are much longer than ours. So it took a lot of advanced work, but when I think what was really lucky was that when we started those, that explore, that exploration of bank partners to when we ended it, I think the message actually got across to the banking community that, Oh, wow. 
fintech is a way to increase your deposit base, your transaction volume in a way that you never would have had otherwise. And so everybody was starting to perk up to this idea that there is just this incredible value to be captured by being the home for one or more fintech companies. And so it got easier toward the end of it. And today, thankfully, there's so many more folks making it easier every day, but uh, it really took just a whole bunch of like smoothing and detective work to, to find the people that you could actually do, do, you know, create a partnership with. Yeah. It's a, uh... I feel like there's 7,000, like there's what, 5,000 banks maybe ish in the US now. There's probably like 7,000 lists of different versions of how to break that down, right? Like there's like the sub Durban yeah. does handle commercial, sub Durban does not handle commercial. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, the the work necessary there. Like I don't, I don't see any gray hair and I'm kind of surprised as a result of that story, okay. to be honest, dude. Um, all right. So b- before we run one more question and then the classical closing, um, the PPP thing, I just want to give you guys a chance to do a little bit of a, like do a little commercial because the PPP work that you did with Cross River, I think is just awesome and worth at least telling the world about a little bit. Well, look, I mean, this is the beauty, I think, of fintech and this idea of of open banking, right, or API banking. Um, We're in a crisis, PPP emerges, and we had to very quickly find a partner that could support our customers. Like, we were never going to be the PPP authorized lender in that kind of time, nor nor did that make sense. That's not where our sweet spot was. So we very quickly thought, who is some of the best technology, thinks like us, and can actually get our customers into the PPP pipeline. And we found Cross River. Um, they were incredible partners. They, they still are. We're still going through with them in the next in this round of PPP. And we gave our customers a like, hey, click here, get into the Cross River, you know, sign up flow pipeline, and like we're gonna try to make this as smooth of a process as possible. And I think the the thing that really hit home was philosophically, we never even contemplated filtering out businesses based on how so- how small they were, what geography they were from, or how many po- possible products they might use, which was what a lot of other banks were doing. Um, and that actually came through where a lot of our new customers from COVID are actually refugees from banks that said, you know, we're not going to process your application. You don't have a mm. credit card with us. And they were like, what does it have to do with anything? And we just say, hey, it's pretty democratic. If your business is legitimate, then you have a right to apply for the you know the PPP program, and we'll help you do that. And hopefully, you'll get you'll get something. And a lot of them did. We unlocked about 130 million dollars of um, support for the small businesses that banked with us, and that was pretty awesome. And I think that is just the the tip of the iceberg in the way that a a very nimble team and a, and a number of folks in the fintech ecosystem can come together in short order to create a lot of value in kind of the, the wallet, kind of the day-to-day of small business owners around the country. It's not just fintech serving fintech. It's actually coming together to serve the end customer in a really interesting way. Hey, Tan, this, is, this has been a blast, man. I really appreciate getting to learn awesome. the way that you think about these things. The, the last, last question is not even really a question, to be honest. It's just where should people go kind of learn more about North One, go learn more about you? Uh, if you are hiring, where should folks go look for jobs? All of that kind of stuff. Do a little commercial and give folks a, a sense of where to find you. Yeah, of course. I mean, look, www.northone.com. That's that's everything. Uh, we are absolutely hiring. So please, you know, if if something resonated to you, with you in this interview, there's some, there, you should think that there's a culture fit possibly. And at the very least, you know, please let us know we're hiring. We have a jobs portal on our webpage. Um, so you could absolutely uh, hit us up there. I'm on Twitter at Aten Ben Susan. Um, you know, we're, we're as accessible as we can be. And we love it. I mean, even if people are just interested in the concept, some of the most interesting relationships we've had is with folks from different walks of life say, hey, I heard you about you over here. And we'll, we'll engage. Um, you know, we're, we're be, never going to be beyond, you know, being able to talk to folks if we have the time. Um, It is so interesting what is unexpected when those conversations emerge. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Eitan, CEO at North One. I've included pertinent links to find more about Eitan and North One in the show notes. This episode was brought to you by Visum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of the next event. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the responsible podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, but not too high because you might get hit in the face. See you next week.